I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today in Pretoria is South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Nomaindia Mfaketo. She is a member of parliament, a chairperson of the African National Congress, caucus from 2008, a member of the ANC National Executive Committee since 2007. She was also the deputy speaker of the National Assembly from 2009 through to 2014. And additionally, she served as executive mayor of the city of Cape Town. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Deputy Minister, you've served South Africa for many years, and in that period you've held a variety of positions. Can you share with us a few of the the landmarks in your career? Well, thank you very much. I think let let me start why I ended up there. I, I learned from many, many strong women in South Africa. All of them, without fail, were members of the ANC before it was banned and when it was banned they didn't stop teaching the different generation. I was only eight years when the ANC was banned but we had you know in all areas there were people women and men and in my case uh, there were these women who are always guiding you even when we're not the right age to be in p- part of the organization. So it was almost osmotic. You didn't know consciously what was happening, but no. it was part of you. Part of, you know, women were coming to our house and everything, and in the neighborhood. I mean, there was a true, uh, this concept of a child is raised by community was always there. It was not only my mother and my father, the whole community. So I think as time goes, it was obvious uh, for some of us that you will join the progressive forces, you have the support. And I think what was happening in the country at that time, it's either fear or a conscious of the justice that needs to happen. A moral that, duty. Yes, that push people into different areas. And I know it's not all of us who grew up at that time, who, when they were at high school, uh, experienced what apartheid government was doing. You must learn just to be a good domestic worker. You must learn Africans. All other language must be silenced. Somehow I've gone through those things. And... Then, when 1976 uh, broke up the students, that activity that started the formal mobilization of youth and women quietly, because even that, you know, it was the culmination of the work that was done underground and This is where formally I started joining the women organization that was called United Women Organization. And with those women who were very, very strong, very brave, and, you know, moral conscious, that was the, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? 
uh, what is it that we're not supposed to be doing. So my foundation is the fact that I joined at a time where there were no accolades to give people who are doing what they're supposed to do. We're always told that there are two ways here. When you do this, you need to commit because you must expect to die or be in jail. Those are two. So most people were not joining because those are the two options. There was nothing about, oh, one day you'll be a deputy minister. One day you'll be a mayor. We didn't even think about that. I heard an expression just yesterday where someone said, if it's worth dying for, then it's worth living for. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. That's true. And this is where it brings all the moral obligation of, if I don't do this, even myself, my children, generations to come, will not see the freedom that we're fighting for. It's a serious responsibility. It is. And so that was the the foundation. That was the foundation. Moving ahead, what would you say have been significant moments? Well, you know, I work in many service organizations and NGOs. And of course, I chose the progressive one. That for me were also lessons on on what is it that needs to be done. Not necessarily preparing for when liberation comes, uh, but, you know, just working with communities and that. Uh, I think that paved the way, because my very first government sort of position was when I was asked from an NGO, asked to be part of negotiating as the negotiations were happening at a national level. There was a local government that, as you know, completely divided into small areas and fractured with the policies that were separating people instead of, you know, integrating people. So we had to discuss how do we bring together all those small municipalities in Cape Town. I think there were about 126 because Belleville had its little, Pineland had its little, you know, all small areas. They were sort of self-governing and then you have all the the non-white groupings having just community councillors who had no power whatsoever. So this is where I started in 92, heading the committee that deliberate. And it was my first time. In fact, when I started, I was sort of very worried about how is it going to turn out being a woman and the chair of the negotiating uh, committee when in fact clearly we're coming from uh, the apartheid side there's still those attitudes and we haven't even finished uh, or complete the negotiation at a national level but all we know organization were unbanned Madiba was out of prison and we're preparing to become the South Africa that we all long for that's where I started at the end of that term around about 94, everybody, after the elections, we were all excited. Then everybody went to parliament, and I was screaming, saying, hey, local government is the most important sphere of government, more than parliament, because this is where the people are. This is where your strength in changing communities is supposed to to be. 
But, you know, in most cases, I mean, people were sort of, you won't be a minister if you're in local government, of course. You'll only be a councillor. But for me, that was the most fulfilling area of my life compared to any other deployment. Uh, because there you deal with communities direct. There you can implement certain things that change the lives of people. And see the impact in yes, a really see, meaningful way. You see the impact immediately and you are able to change it. Yes, there are challenges because the turnaround from what the country was and what you want to do, it, it it's taking a long time because of, you know, the, the structural uh, it's, challenges. It's complex and there's never complex. one black and white line to follow. There's always another hurdle which, which comes in which is unaccounted and, for. And, and also... It's, it's caused by the fact that whilst you're doing the transformation and changing, you also have the important task of building one nation. You know, this whole thing of expectation, because there were lots of expectation that when Matiba is released from prison, when we go for election and win election because we're more than 80%, for other people it meant you will go and take Constantia. You will go and take the farms and do that, which is far from the truth because the whole process was we building a new South Africa. Yes, that equality, that non-racialism, and all that goes with it must be part of what you keep on doing. It sounded like a very challenging a time to manage multiple expectations and to develop the, the cohesion and unity. It was. And skipping ahead now to your, your current portfolio and role, in your line of work you travel extensively to different countries and in that I'm sure you've had the opportunity of being able to see to what extent gender equality rates uh, in those uh, different countries. What lessons would you say we should take from countries that are getting it right in well, gender equality? Well, I think there are lessons in few countries. Rwanda would count as one of those countries that were able to sort of really practically talk about gender equality. And I mean, Nordic uh, you know, countries also. But having said that, South Africa being a young democracy, I think we've done well. Consciously, you might not see it because when we talk about other countries, it doesn't, even Rwanda to some extent, because the, the gender equality is not just seeing me in a, in a particular position. is you, you must gauge that by the level of women in that country. So you're looking through the entire pyramid, yes. not just within yes. a sliver of it. Whilst representation is important because you're helping the young ones and other people to see if that person who's a woman like me can be there, it means I can go there. But more than anything for lawmakers, it must be 
something you measure qualitatively with what is it that is happening. Do you encourage young girls to play with poppy dolls instead of driving cars? Do you encourage uh, that gender equality at that level? What about ordinary women? Because gender equality is not only for those who are educated. It must also be for ordinary women, the laws that you pass, the teachings uh, that you do at school and in every sector. Uh, We still have a situation where you talk about uh, uh, gender equality and if there's a law, you go to countries, yes, there's gender, but that is a fake gender of, you know, you take the weak women and put them there or you took wives and relatives and that, put them there because you still want to maintain, you know, that male dominance. In so it's window dressing in yeah, a way. Definitely. It's window dressing in some instances. And by doing that at times, you're not doing justice to gender equality. Of course not. Because once you put people like that, what you'll always get is those kind of people bang the door behind them. But then it's also a reflection of, well, this is someone who's been put in this position who is not equipped, who is just a figurehead. But yet, if it is a woman, it's going to reflect badly on all women who come after her. That she is, this is what a woman can do. But the reality is she is not a representation of of their capability. One of the things that I've found increasingly in the last few months is that there's lots of inter-country, inter-regional cooperation. It tends to be a, a prevailing theme. We had uh, SADC hosting their 37th summit where they spoke about partnering with the private sector in developing industry and regional value chains. There was the Indian Ocean Rim Association where their theme was uniting the peoples of Africa, Asia, Australia, and the Middle East through enhanced cooperation for peace, stability, and sustainable development. And the messages that I see coming through are looking at economic sustainability, but also about the environment to ensure that we have economic sustainability. Can you share with us a bit more of South Africa's foreign relation policies in respect to connecting private sectors across country borders for yeah. job creation? Yeah. No, thank you very much. I mean, that's, that's a, an important question. You know, we're part of the global community as South Africa. And this is the beauty of, you know, freedom or liberation because you are able to learn from other countries. Now, we, we must start, as all countries do, we must start from our own region. We are a country in Africa, and if we don't form those strong uh, relations with countries in Africa to make it easy for the continent to trade with each other, to acknowledge the power that we have because we have the minerals, not only in South Africa, all over. We won't do it right. So, yes, we're part of that continent of ours where we speak with one voice. When I go to Middle East, when I go to Asia or any other region, I'm not only speaking for South Africa. I speak when I talk about trade, when I talk about economic diplomacy, 
when I talk about investment that needs to happen, I talk about the region, which is the African continent. And then that's the first one, but it goes beyond that. The part of what we're doing, besides or in addition to forming relations with different countries, because we are a global community, key to that is a good working relationship that would equip our communities, that would build bridges, but also, more importantly, that would be able to invest in each other's country. So the fact that now, this year, we're chairing Ayora mm-hmm. is, is something that, for us, we'll chair Ayora for two years. Hopefully, by then, we must have at least strengthen women in South Africa, women in the region, but in all those countries that are part of the Indian Ocean Rim, even beyond. And there are great opportunities because we're focusing on lots of environmental issues now, but also we're focusing on what is it that we can benefit, you know, from the Indian Ocean. Well, the blue ocean economy is a big Eco- component. Yes, it is. Um, and I mean, if we do it right, we, we stand to gain a lot from that. Very significant. And as you'd mentioned, this is also about the empowerment of women through these, these dialogues and interactions. But another area that uh, I tapped into on, on the introduction of this question is that there is significant work underway to address conflict resolution and ensure stability. And more often than not, women and children who tend to be the vulnerable members of society are most impacted. So whilst we've got the economic development and all of us driving forwards and ahead, Mm. can you comment a little bit in terms of how we're managing the the conflict resolution in particular regard to women? In fact, we... We focus, there's a dedicated department in DECO where we train women as peacekeepers because you'll agree with me that when it comes to sending delegation after delegation envoys to different countries, let alone South Africa because we haven't uh, taken those women into all areas of conflict, but we do train uh, peacekeepers both from South African women and the continent. And we have partnership with countries like Sweden, Denmark, and Norway that are doing the same. And the whole purpose is exactly to be able to go to an area. If there's a peacekeeping force in Sudan, as you are saying, what we always, or in any other country, what we see would be Whenever there's a war, the women of that country are the most vulnerable to what is happening, not only by those people in their country, but even the outside peacekeepers that are supposed to be coming uh, to make peace in that country. So the intention really is assist in sending those women there so that they become peace envoys in those countries with, with uh, their knowledge. It's a program that is closer to my heart because I I see it as 
not only something that happens during war, but I see it as something that we need to own in South Africa where we are able to resolve conflicts amicably because somebody can have a knowledge of facilitating how we resolve our conflicts in communities. Now, because if we do that properly, we would never have service delivery unrest in different areas. We can dispatch those people, they talk to communities, they facilitate the meeting between communities and the municipalities, and they won't be destroying of infrastructure that has been built uh, with huge monies. It's certainly an important skill, and as you say, prevention is far better than looking at the after effects when that devastation does occur. Today, we're talking to South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperations, Nome India Mfaketo. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Nama India Mfaketo. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Deputy Minister I must say that in this program we've seen many remarkable women like you. And I often wonder if these women who have contributed so much to society in many ways to bring about positive change, and you've highlighted some of the examples of the work that you've done in local government, the dispatching of peacekeepers being women into different territories for conflict resolution. If we had focused on gender equality in a big way that perhaps collectively, perhaps it's wishful thinking from my side, that we would have been able to eradicate it and make gender inequality a scar of the past. What's your view? You know, it, it's, it's not as easy as that. I think we've done our bit and maybe it's something that need to be done in small bites at a time. I think there's so much. I mean, we, we've established that consciousness. What is important for me is we've established the consciousness in different sectors, even private sector, where people are able to look amongst themselves and see if there's a gender balance wherever they are. So if we work hard, I don't think we've worked that hard, uh, but definitely we've done what we can do. And is there consciousness amongst the different generation that comes behind us? I would say yes. I think because of the role that was played by many, many women before us and our generation, I am confident that today, if you are even talking to an eight-year-old girl, my granddaughter is eight years, 
my granddaughter will never be bullied by a young boy of that age. You can, you can see even just when she comes back and talk about what's happening at school and that, you can see that generation of young women. They are not even going to stand what at some stage was guided by cultural practices of where women should be at a particular time. Now already, because of social media and everything and everything, they are there and they demand to be recognized as women or young girls who can do this. I mean, my granddaughter always say, but these boys think we can't do what they are doing. We know we are equally capable to do whatever. So I think that society is changing. It's so uplifting to hear that coming out of this next generation, which is the future of the country, that she is totally wired in a different way, that she hasn't got any misconceptions about her ability. She's confident. She's self-assured. Yeah. No, no, no. It's And I think we need to keep as older sisters, as parents, as society, we need to keep encouraging that that even the sky is not a limit. Mm. And it starts from small things. Because if we ignore that level and start giving young girls dolls to play with, teaching them how to bake and that, not how to fly an aeroplane or how to be an engineer and fix this car and all those things we need, then they will slowly or unconsciously, you know, prepare themselves for motherhood or whatever. Influencing early childhood development is so important. And I hear it time and time again where people have talked about the role of their parents influencing their lives and they hadn't realized it till they'd already started their careers of... It's almost positive brainwashing. Yes. And it it starts there. Now, in your opinion, given your experience and exposure what areas do you think we need to build on the most to benefit women optimally in the future i think there's a lot let me start there there are many many women of different generations who are really trying to do something uh, for themselves i know there's a group that uh, is busy trying to create a women's bank from not only South Africans but the whole continent I'm speaking at that conference later this month and these are ordinary citizens ordinary women others are were public servants or were in private sector so they are getting together and say you know we need to assist uh, women I, I think what women of different uh, levels and different economic um, situation need most is an ear to listen to their challenges but also an assistant because others just need to be they have the model they need to be assisted uh, with maybe just opening that door for financial uh, startups or whatever But more than that, I think there's nothing worse than not being listened to. 
and you have to kick the doors for people to listen to you. That is certainly one of the challenges that people confront, particularly when they're looking at starting up a new business venture, because there's so many unknowns, uh, misconceptions, and it's it's very challenging. So yeah. having an ability to be heard and help. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think my, my, really, my take would be, but don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. I mean, just continue banging that door. It will open one day. And if it doesn't, a window will, yeah. or something else will give. Yeah. Turning more towards a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about the factors that have contributed to their success. Some people speak about the, the role of an organization or people in their lives or values of hard work and perseverance. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? I think it starts from home. starts from home, the lessons that you and values that you are given when you grow up. Um, you know, when I grew up, I thought my parents were very strict about certain values that, you know, you must cherish. Um, but soon, I mean, as, as I grow up, I realize that these are important stepping stone for whatever you want to do in life. And it prepares you for the organization as well. Because if values of integrity, values of conscious and clean conscious and humility and knowing that you serve more than lead, you serve people. Those for me are, you know, certain values that where, wherever I go, I, I test my ability from those values. And I want to sleep peacefully at night because I've done certain things and they sit well with my conscience. Can you share with us a few of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Well, I mean, there are many of them. As, as I said earlier, we, we grew up in a country where there were many, many of people who are, were always worse than you. Um, you know, I think my parents tried very hard uh, with all the situation and circumstances prevailing at that time to raise us in a comfortable uh, environment protecting us from all the ills of the country so that we don't have that negativity which was good I think some of the things that happened when I was young I think as I was 8 years old when the, the seed of injustice uh, was planted into, into my mind. Armies surrounding where we were just moved to, that forced removal, moving us from one area and leaving all your friends, beautiful house. And I still remember, I mean, I laugh afterwards when I was old. I was missing 
the one thing I was crying for are the friends I left behind in Elsa's River and the berry trees that were near home and every time coming from school I'll go and get lots and lots of berries and we'll sit down and all kinds of berries that that's where they were and we'll sit down and eat berries now but coming to this area uh, it was during the state of emergency in the 60 1960 I was eight years old and but all the houses because there was a strike all the houses were surrounded by the army and but I think for me was looking at these guys they were about 18 19 they were not that old and our fathers were old and they were hiding under the in the cupboards and everywhere else and this sense of injustice I felt was but how can my father when he's this old I took it as a child as if my father is scared of this young man who's carrying a gun next to our house why why is he carrying a gun to older people and and that and you know white and and that so I mean, some of those things were planted, even being involved, were planted by those small incidents that as a child you think, no, this is unfair, uh, but it's happening nonetheless. And it's only later that you associate it with the color and the apartheid and all those things, which is something that is not supposed to happen. And I admire our kids now growing up uh, in an environment where... They talk about pit, they they meet, they sit next to, and they don't know. It's us who would poison them with, you know, that they don't know about it. It's the way it should be. Yes, yes. Those are certainly challenges to have overcome and... I would say when you were conducting all of the work that you were doing as an important point of of departure on how you balance the outcomes that we had to have an integrated society. And, And I still feel there's no other way. There's no other way. We still have lots of work to do. I mean, we've seen the, the farm march, which was good because other people are protesting. But you see, if it just had an element of uniting everybody, because now you have lots of people talking about it because, you know, they, they didn't act as South Africans. It was as if, oh, it's because there's a new South Africa. We long for the old South Africa. And it sort of, you know, in the part of what I was saying about you do, you transform, but you must never forget that you're still building this young democracy into a fully-fledged democracy where we won't see the color at all. It's scars of the past. Yeah, yeah, right. Deputy Minister, we are unfortunately running out of time. Can I please ask you to share a few words of inspiration or wisdom which you'd like to impart to young ladies that are listening to the show? Yeah. I think important in all everything that you do for me find that little thing that you are very passionate about I was saying earlier 
You know, when we were introduced into this work, we were told there are only two things. You detain or you die. And we've experienced all those except dying. Now, but, because for me it was something that I, I, something that was my life. And the passion was what would come. It's a pain today, but, you know, at some stage, uh, things would go, are going to be okay. So, I mean, to young women out there, I think if, don't just take whatever you, you is presented to you. If you are passionate about doing something, then it would be very easy to do. You will sleep and wake up thinking about what you're doing. And whatever, this is not about politics, whatever field, if you are a sports person, if you are a business, if you are uh, doing an artist, if that is your line, do it with all your heart. And also knowing that the generation younger than you out there will learn from what you're doing if you're doing it passionately. Thank you for that wonderful message. Pursue your passions wholeheartedly because it not only affects you as an individual, but it affects the future thereafter. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for this interview. You have been listening to Humanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to the Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Nomeindia Mfaketo.